With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Hello and welcome to the TIFO Football Podcast. I am JJ Bull. Joe Devine is not here this week. But even better, people are here, like Seb Stafford Blower. Hello, JJ Bull. You sound very sexy today, Seb, with your nice low voice. Thank you very much. Sorry, my, my, we'll see if my throat can... Uh, can withstand the podcast, see if it can survive for the next hour. Withstand the sheer power of the podcast. And also... The podcast. Yes. And yes, we're in various states of, uh, of play here. And also we're joined by Alex Stewart. Hello, JJ. Alex sitting in his stairwell today. We've decided to do this over Zoom for various reasons. One of them being a bank holiday. And I spent all of yesterday... In a brewery. Today's show is going to be very good. We watched lots of football this weekend, and it was all for not like there was Newcastle. They played Liverpool. Played the title race gets ever faster, uh, which is obviously good. That's what you want. Um, very exciting down at the bottom as well. Watford and Burnley. Ooh, what a game! There was also a game in another country that I know me and Seb watched. We'll find out if Alex watched it later. But if you like football from all different countries, well. The best way to read about those is by going to The Athletic. And if you go to theathletic.com forward slash TIFO, I think is the link, there will be a deal. And you should take that deal now. And in exchange for your clickering on the the link, you will get something like 30 days for free. (laughs) And it's a trial. You have to try it out. Try it for yourself. See if you like it. And if you do, oh boy, you're going to be in for a real... Real good time, because you get to read all the great things. What's the best thing you've read in The Athletic this last week, Seb? Well, JJ, I read a really, really excellent obituary of Mina Riola by James Horncastle. All about how he, he rose to become one of the most uh, influential agents the game has ever seen. Really excellent. Also, um, bust a few myths about his career. Uh, very, very interesting read, which came out uh, came out this morning, which is Monday. So, uh, yeah, do have a go at that. And uh, if you're on your trial while you read that, then you will definitely, definitely, definitely be... Uh, What's the opposite of trial? Becoming a permanent member, not trial member. Yes, be a member of the club of which everyone wants you to be a member. Forever, yeah, exactly. Uh, But like we say, it is a trial. It doesn't have to be forever. But if you do it forever, you'll have a great time. Anyway, that's our athletic plug this week. So I think what we should do is talk about the football because we should do that. So without further ado, uh, what's he say? Um, I'll leave you in the cold Cold arms. Cold hands, warm embrace. (laughs) I'll leave you in the cold (laughs) arms and the the warm warm heart. The warm heart and the wonderful voice. Look at Seb's voice this week of Seb Stafford Bloor and Alex Stewart. Here we go. Newcastle nil, one Liverpool. They keep their grip on the, well, second place, isn't it? Because they're in second after this weekend. Manchester City are still on top. What happened in this? Why should we talk about this one? Well, I think Alex should talk about this one because I did not watch it. We were on our on the <laughs> way back from our, our TIFO retreat when this happened. 
Oh, yes. I so, don't know what the Tifo retreat is because I obviously wasn't invited because I've already retreated enough from the world. <laughs> and uh, I don't need to be encouraged any further. I read a really nice book actually over the weekend called A Simpler Life from the School of Life Publishing House. You should read it. Everyone should read it. The reason that this is interesting, I think, is mostly just because Liverpool are really purring despite the fact that they made, I think, five changes for this game. So uh, Joe Gomez came in at right back. It was a really interesting point on Match of the Day about how they were still able to maintain this high defensive line, spring a number of offside traps, possibly the most offsides that have been recorded in a game this season by a team, I think, I vaguely recall. I think it was nine against Newcastle, and that was the record this season because it's normally eight they get, but they're very good at that, yeah. Yeah, there was one particular point where Gomez was quite a little bit behind play, but was able to adjust rapidly and step up. Milner obviously slotted in. Uh, Nabi Keita, who has been having something of a resurgence, is kind of an interesting player, Nabi Keita, because he was a stats darling uh, when he moved to Liverpool and everyone was hugely excited about him and he did all kinds of sexy things like press-resistant dribbling, which uh, us stats nerds like to, to get excited about. But obviously he's not quite delivered on, on that promise, largely because of injury, but... These last few weeks, I think we've seen him be really dominant in Liverpool's midfield, add something in terms of progression, in terms of driving forwards. Obviously, he got a great goal. But yeah, it's mainly just this, you know, Liverpool are rotating. We've associated Liverpool with this front three, particularly for such a long time. And in this game, Luis Diaz came in, Diogo Jota came in, and they're still just clicking. They should have won this game by more, but it's really impressive. And obviously with Klopp announcing that he is in fact staying that the sabbatical is no more this is a team i think you know we're going to see a two-horse race in the premier league for the next four or five years <laughs> for sure is that going to be exciting who can say i think so and i don't think it'll be like in scotland where the two are just so far ahead you can't get close or i mean i suppose in spain you've got three really atletico are kind of in the mix and um, that on that offside point i think this is one of the things that when it goes wrong, pundits immediately say, well, they should have been playing a different way. But there seems to be a universal acceptance of what they're doing is actually working very well. Like pushing high and deliberately trying to catch people offside. It's the the high risk bit of it. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, there's a lot of times you'd find people would slag that off and say that they're idiots for trying it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think <laughs> I go back to uh, a game that Spurs absolutely eviscerated Southampton. Seb will remember this game. I think Song Kyung min set up Harry Kane for four goals or something obscene. And their Saints were committed to this incredibly high line, very energetic, kind of trying to press in the middle of the park. And they got absolutely pulled apart. But when it works, obviously, both from a defensive perspective in terms of denying the opposition space to build up, catching the opposition offside, but also in an offensive way, because you are compressing the space, it allows you to turn the ball over higher up the pitch and therefore you know, create opportunities off the back of that. It's really effective. Liverpool also have Alisson in goal who you know, made at least, I think, one. There was one very good one-on-one save when it was actually offside anyway. But he has this ability to kind of command the area in much the same way as Edison does. He's good enough with his feet. That is part of what allows them to do this. Van Dyke's recovery pace, Matip's recovery pace as well is really helpful, but it's absolutely crucial to what Liverpool do. Um, and yes, like you say, pundits will pick up on the one or two times that it goes wrong. 
because everyone likes a stick to beat teams. With. Do you know what I was thinking that in this Liverpool Man City teams, right? So, so Seb, we are going to do this a Premier League team of the season soon, right? This is the thing we're going to do. And I was thinking about who maybe we get into mind. All of the players come from Man City and Liverpool. The, the best ones are all at those two clubs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it kind of makes a statement about the league, doesn't it? I think also what's quite interesting about that is that um, I suppose the same is really true of Man City, but certainly at Liverpool, all the best players in the league, all the players that you can think of that have had standout seasons, in that side they've kind of had standout seasons at different times. So you had that ridiculous purple patch that Mohamed Salah had. And then he tailed off a little bit, so he went from being absolutely outstanding to merely very excellent. And then Sadio Mane's level rose. And then Naby Keita started to show what a good player he is. Like Alex mentioned it before about how he was perceived in Germany. And you're kind of suddenly now seeing the player that he was assumed to be. Luis Diaz came in in January and was immediately excellent. And I think the same is really true at Man City. I think um, Gabriel Jesus' renaissance kind of he's just rehabilitated his, his reputation a little bit. I don't think he was thought of badly. He was just a kind of an afterthought. Bernardo Silva has sort of come into his own over there probably since the, the beginning of the new year and Kevin De Bruyne's form. And so you, all you have is kind of like these rising thermals that come out of different parts of the team, sort of different pockets of space on the side. And um, as a result, the level never really drops. And the result is these two teams that just batter everybody continuously every week. Um, and yeah, it's, it's interesting. It's also, we were doing JJR player of the season vote last week on the live stream it makes things like that really difficult live on the stream live on the stream with some yeah. technical difficulties but they were resolved and it makes that kind of thing really difficult because obviously recency bias becomes a huge 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 factor even if kind of a player's had an excellent two weeks you're thinking oh, yeah but you know Mohamed Salah was only really brilliant for six months and you know he wasn't he was only an eight out of ten last week so we'll just drop him off the ballot but it's a uh, I don't know it's uh, at the same time both an incredibly depressing indictment of Premier League football because it's just dominated by a small group of players, but also it's also a, a very flattering description of the two squads that have been put together and the talent within them. But there's also, right, this is another thing I think, this is probably a stupid thing to say, that sometimes you look at a team and they're losing and you think, those players are rubbish, like uh, Newcastle's players, for example, right? <laughs> so you think, they're not very good, they're not very good, and you think they're not very good. But then they're playing for, if they do well, you suddenly see that there's good, I'm trying to think of a good team like this as an example, is like Everton. So I, I don't think their squad's very good at all. It's pretty poor. But if they were to win, say, six games in a row, you start to see, oh, Richardson's really, really good. Calvert-Lewin's a really good player. Michael Keane it was highly thought of not that long ago. I don't know, really know what my point is here, but... <laughs> it's context. Your, 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 point, your point is about context, though, isn't it? Because like, if, you, if you raise the baseline of a team, like if, if, if everybody is pretty good, you get to see the kind of the outstanding performance. Like the Everton point spot on because you see, you only really see how good Richarlison is when there's a kind of system in place which allows him to form really well. Um, when there's too much responsibility on him, when he's kind of the system itself rather than an extension of it, you kind of see limitations and you see him missing chances and you see him a little bit frantic in his movement. Um, so no, it's, it's a very, very fair point. I think, um, I think Wolves are a pretty good example of that. Or they were at different points under Nuno Espirito Santo, and um, you know, for most of the season under Bruno Large. Like when they're playing well, people talk about. I know he's had a, a, an injury, injury disruptors of eighteen months, but people talk about how good a player Pedro Neto is, and we haven't mentioned Pedro Neto really for ages. Part of that's injury, but part of it's because Wolves has kind of dropped off since the turn of the year. Um, so you need, yeah, you need that baseline for for kind of your your standout performance to operate from. Alex, 
Did you vote for someone in the Football Writers Award this season? Uh, no, because I'm not a member of the FWA. Ah, I did not know that. Well, I thought it was interesting. We talked about this in the live stream. Um, that me and Seb did, like Seb was saying, we did our, him and I did our picked our player on the deadline, which is the 27th of April, I think it was. Um, I always think this is very interesting because if you don't live in journalist land, um, this is how it's decided. It's people like the ones on this podcast right now, except Alex, <laughs> who who have these, who make these votes, and then that becomes. And one of the things that me and Seb were talking about that I thought was interesting was that, as well as recency bias being a thing, within like media and newspapers and whatever we refer to the athletic as, um, there's some sort of thing where we create, or not us, but other people create a sort of narrative that then makes this player seem better than he is. I think N'Golo Conte was one of the best players in the world a couple of seasons ago. Maybe he's dipped down a little bit. But that sort of thing, like he became the sort of the darling of the, the stories that made him the, the part of that Leicester team that, that was... Uh, massive when who actually won it was it Riyad Mahrez or Jamie Vardy or something like that I can't remember who won the award that it was year. Jamie Vardy I don't know I just find that really interesting well there's always a, a thing about goals isn't there I mean a- attacking players are always privileged in this sort of competition and that's understandable because goals win games and winning games wins titles but I do think it's interesting how probably because of an increase in the availability of tactical analysis in the media and also stats. I think people maybe are recognizing the contributions of players who are not just the Mohamed Salah or the Jamie Vardy or the Song Heung-min or Harry Kane. Like maybe people are a little more appreciative of that kind of player that perhaps reached its apogee fairly or unfairly with um, Jorginho being... (laughs) being touted to win the Ballon d'Or, which, no. Uh, but I, I do think there's probably there's probably an increased awareness of the fact that it's not just players that score goals. I mean, I'd be interested to know who you both voted for. Are you allowed to tell me? And goals win games. <laughs> Mohamed Salah! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I voted for Salah too. Like, uh, there's a really interesting point there, like the Vardy thing. The Vardy thing was about two things, in my opinion. One, he became emblematic of that title win because so many of the victorious moments within that season involved him scoring goals. He went on that incredible run of consecutive games scoring goals. Also, he came with that pre-packaged story about his rise from the lower leagues. And that's always very, very seductive, especially for football writers who try and kind of, um, you know, add additional layers to stories. Um, oh, I'm not saying that it shouldn't have been him. I, I, I just, I think it's an interesting wider point about how that conversation's moved on a bit yeah i wasn't um i wasn't a member of the fwa um until after that season but i think also the ungolo kante thing is 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 quite interesting because i think a lot of this comes in hindsight like i think most people knew probably halfway through that leicester season when um it became realistic that they might win the title and everyone started talking about kante but it wasn't the kind of right we're going to talk about him from august onwards and also, I think what he's achieved in the years since, obviously he's a European Cup winner, um, he's won the Premier League, he's worked under a succession of managers, and also he's become accepted as being world-class because it's not just a single season, whereas other players within that, so Danny Drinkwater has never been the same player again, um, he was a system footballer, uh, Robert Huth, Wes Morgan, Danny Simpson, these players, um, Christian Fuchs, Shinji um, uh, Okagawa, Okazaki, sorry, um, Okagawa is the uh, Armenia Bellafield player, um, Okazaki, like it was a it was a strange collection of footballers who achieved an incredible level together, 
and Kante, like Mares, um, like Vardy at the time, they've, they've been the ones to separate themselves in the years since. Um, and so I think that becomes a, it's very difficult actually to vote for something within a single season. When someone says, who's your footballer of the year? It's impossible when you, you think of someone like Mohamed Salah not to factor in what he's done before and not to think of the goals because a lot of his goals look similar to one another. He's, you know, his patterns of play are quite familiar. And so isolating something in time, creating kind of a vacuum of judgment is, um, is super hard. So, I, you know, it's, it's fair enough. As, as I've said before, I think um, ultimately these sorts of things are completely pointless for the reasons that you've just described. <laughs> that is a very broad area of stuff that you just don't rate as being important though, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's true as well. It's a lot of things in that category. <laughs> Individual awards don't matter until you win one. That's basically how that works. Yeah, exactly that. Okay, let's talk about a different game then. Watford won to Burnley. Very exciting stuff at the bottom of the table. Um, I mean, Aston Villa beat Norwich and Norwich are down. That's one thing, but we can talk about that in a bit. But Watford here, they took the lead, didn't they? And then Burnley came back. Am I correct in thinking that? You are indeed correct in thinking that. So um, Burnley went behind to a James Tarkovsky own goal. Really unlucky one. It's not like a sort of um, a Jamie Pollock own goal. It was just a deflection. And um, he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. But I was really impressed by... I think Burnley have become a lot more intense I think the key to, to that, their comeback on Saturday was the fact that for long periods of that game, particularly the second half, Watford found it really difficult to get out of their own half. And when you're a struggling side that have conceded lots of goals and probably lack a lot of confidence in your defensive positions, if you're being asked to do a lot of things in your own penalty box, not a good thing. Having said that, I do think it was a, a, a case of Burnley winning the game rather than Watford losing it. Ben Foster had made a couple of really, really good saves to, to keep them ahead. But then ultimately super, not really diving header by Jack Cork more a kind of um, I don't know falling collapsing header because you know how your your um, your classic diving header is a bit more sort of has a little bit more of a, a straighter trajectory he kind of just it almost looks like he trips over into the ball and sort of faces it into the net it's actually technically a very good finish and um, a great bit of movement actually by Jack Cork and 1-1 and then it becomes 2-1 uh, with Josh Brown winning it it's interesting because I think sort of that's that was an example and um, <laughs> you know after Everton won on Sunday that might not this might not quite hold up as much as it did but you win a game like that two goals in quick succession all your substitutes and coaching staff kind of pile out of the dugout to celebrate and that looked like a survival moment from Burnley you know when on like Premier League years they play decisive fixtures and you share the response to the crowd and the kind of the moments that define the season um, that looked like one of them and um I still think it will because I still there was a huge win for Burnley because yes I, I know and I'm sure we'll talk about Everton later but the table still says that Everton are a huge amount of trouble and Burnley are looking pretty good they've got a not such a bad run in so yeah it was good it was um, I was thinking back to what we said in the aftermath of Sean Dyche being sacked and I think two things can be true I think that you could say that the way that Sean Dyche was handled was pretty brutal given what he's done for the club but now it looks like the right decision because there's an energy there uh, an intensity and there's a kind of I, I hope this doesn't sound derogatory but there's a simplicity to the football which is very effective I thought anyway maybe uh, Burnley fans want to correct me on that one but it's become a little less complicated and it's becoming more effective as, as a result like you're seeing um, the reappearance of what you probably consider more traditional Burnley values in their football and that's been the heart of their kind of revival I think but yeah huge win well is there is there anything is there anything tactically different that's, that's changed since Dice has gone or is it just 
that sort of uh, the cliched new manager bounce, even though it's not a new manager, and the bit of a wake up from losing someone like Dice. Yeah, there's 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 a couple of things. Dwight McNeil is playing off the right hand side to start with a lot more, although towards the end of this game, or maybe the final third, he swapped back with Aaron Lennon, who I thought actually had a really good game. Aaron Lennon, she kind of oh my god, he still plays. Confused me, yeah. <laughs> and so you you have this. Um, you know, McNeil's obviously a, is very capable of driving with the ball. He's also part of what, what Seb is saying, this ability to press high and, and actually regain possession. McNeil does that really effectively, which is not something you necessarily associate with him. But those surging runs coming in off the, the right-hand side onto a stronger left foot, that makes a lot of sense. Although there is also an argument to say if you're playing Veghorst up front, then you should have orthodox wingers to cross the ball in. I think what Seb's saying about simplicity is true to a degree. They're working the ball a little bit more patiently and they're a little bit better at creating, you know, third man runs, passing opportunities out of triangles. It's slightly more measured. And I think that's been really successful. Also, you know, someone like Vidra dropping off, adding a little bit of possession in that kind of 10 space, because obviously if Burnley are playing with that 4-4-2, that's an area that they tend not to occupy all that much. So yeah, like little changes, nothing massively significant, but significant enough to be working. Well, I mean, it looks very much like Watford are gone. That's not mathematically correct yet. They're 10 points off Everton, who have a game in hand uh, to the 19th. They've only got one point more than Norwich, just to put in context how bad they've been this season. But they're gone. Yeah, yeah, they're gone. They're gone. Well, let's talk about another game after this break. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day, or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And we're back from the break. What a break we had there. Now, Norwich are gone. I don't really care about that game. Last Villa won that 2-0. Well done to them. But what we should talk about is Everton won Chelsea. Well, Everton won nil Chelsea, to say it in the proper TIFO uh, language. So Everton managed to beat Chelsea. This I watched this in um, the brewery that I was in yesterday, and the general consensus was that Chelsea were doing Lampard a favour, which is obviously not what they were doing. That's not what happened. How did Everton beat Chelsea? They worked incredibly hard. I know that's going to sound like a proper football man thing to say. <laughs> they wanted it more. It's always the answer to that, isn't it? It's, they, yeah. But they did, actually, to be fair. I, the the, the lineup. Going off the team sheet, it looked like it would be a pretty orthodox 4-3-3, which is something that Lampard likes with Iwobi on the right-hand side of that midfield. But I don't know whether they started immediately because I was making a coffee, I'm sorry. But the shape very, very quickly looked like a 5-4-1. But it was an interesting 5-4-1 because with Coleman as the right-sided centre-back, 
and also Holgate is the left-sided centre-back who has played as a full-back, although not on the left-hand side. You had really aggressive wide centre-backs from Everton who were pushing out and being really quite disruptive with Yerry Mina kind of anchoring as a sweeper. And that meant that when Chelsea were trying to drop off and have players like Werner or Mount or Havertz playing between the lines, one of those centre-backs would push up and, and create problems for them, often helped out by a midfielder dropping back. It also meant that one of those wide centre-backs could pull wide and double up with a full-back if, or wing-back if, again, Werner or Havertz pulled out into the wide areas or if Chelsea tried to create overloads with their wing backs. So it was like a really good defensive system. It made a lot of sense. It also relied on huge work ethic. I mean, Damari Gray's uh, running, tackling, trying to do everything and then carry the ball forwards uh, for Richarlison. If you're if you're a fan of a team that is in that much trouble and you have a player like Damari Gray putting in that kind of effort, like you feel good about that. Um, I thought he was absolutely superb. But yeah, it, it was it was just good. It was hard working. And it was, it was a nice contrast from the Merseyside derby, which was a game that I really enjoyed watching. But Everton, this felt like an Everton team that was defensively organized, gritty and aggressive without that little bit of sort of histrionics and time wasting and so on that, that characterized the Merseyside derby. It was like Lampard had taken it all the way to 11 in terms of you know, getting his team to play like dicks and then dialed it down to maybe a nine against Chelsea and it worked really effectively. That's what the that's what I noticed was how I think the word I think it's written down here, but I agree, spiky Everton have been. It's like that's what Lampard seems to have done is get them fired up. So Yeah, that spikiness, that needle kind of came out of nowhere in that game though, didn't it? Because all of a sudden there was that strange running battle between Yerimina and Kai Havertz, which seemed to last about seventy five minutes. Also there was a strange moment where I felt like Cesar Azpilicueta sensed that his teammates were a little bit sleepy for the main and it was kind of Chelsea are in that weird territory where their season's over they're, they're going to finish in the Champions League places they've got nothing really left to play for and Azpilicueta kind of involved himself in a ruck just before I think it was just before half time that sort of it was like a kind of look at me lads I, I'm up for it everybody else wake up a little bit moment but yeah it became it became nasty at different points there was that sort of feigned headbutt that Mina tried on Harvard's didn't know you were allowed to do that, I'd be honest, but okay. Uh, kind of headbutt faint. But it's important because I think if Everton play that Chelsea side with a kind of dispassionate, purely tactical approach, they're going to lose because they're inferior. Whereas if you turn it into something which is a little bit beyond football and where the kind of the, the atmosphere and the mood gets a little bit more jagged, I think you have a better chance. And also that suited the way that, that Everton wanted to play. So... Alex has talked about Damari Gray. Absolutely right. He was he was really really excellent. Richarlison was brilliant. Richarlison was um, the kind of I think as Everton have, have sunk more into the depths, you've seen the kind of the the more blue collared side of Richarlison's playing personality. He's worked very very hard. There was a time during the second half when he went down like about four or five times with what looked like a really nasty cramp. He kept getting up and hobbling around. But if you want to play intensely and if you want to play in a combative way, hey, keep the adrenaline up in the game. Uh, it suits you and also let's not let's, let's not turn kind of Yari Mina into just a bogeyman player like I thought he played very very well and also he makes a huge difference to them just him being there he's 
I don't think he's the very best defender. He's not the most reliable, but when he's good, he's very good. And also he very clearly has a kind of talismanic effect on his teammates. And he's clearly well liked in that group. And these things are super important. And um, yeah, Everton, Everton were good. You, you could you could see that. You could see that um, dynamic between him and Pickford. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Made three really good saves. Yeah. And the, the, the first one where he scrambles back across the goal once the, the balls hit the post was an outstanding piece of goalkeeping. But I thought that point you were making, Seb, about, about Needle was absolutely right. And what felt really interesting was that, that Everton's aggression and caring felt entirely genuine. Yeah. Whereas yeah, Chelsea yeah, yeah. seemed to have to try to manufacture that. It, it was like they, they started the game just not really being up for it, which I can't believe I'm saying that. Um, no, but I, I, it's the right thing to say, though, because I think at the highest level, if you there's like a kind of a 5% difference between application and attitude, it makes a huge difference. And also, Chelsea are kind of in a, a little bit of an undead state, though, aren't they? Because they were absolutely dreadful against Arsenal 10 days ago in that game at Stamford Bridge, defended dismally. They beat West Ham, but I think West Ham, well, you know, took them all the way uh, at Stamford Bridge at the last weekend. And this was another, I, I, they had a lot of possession, they didn't really do anything with it. You know, Pickford did make a couple of good saves, but they were very, very muted. I, if I were a Chelsea fan, I would be so frustrated with the. The fact yeah. that they are constantly overlooking runs in behind all the time. Yeah, yeah, they yeah, recycle yeah. the ball, they shift it out wide, they create these patterns, but they there were, I think, four or five occasions at least that I counted where there was a, not simple, but there was a direct progressive pass through the lines to a player that was making a good run, often Werner actually, and Chelsea are just ignoring it. I don't know whether... There's a, there's like a, what's the word? Reticence because so many chances have been spurned or because the tactical instructions are so clear that, you know, you get it wide, you pull them this way, you pull them that way. But like, just play the ball in behind occasionally because... I think it's comfort zone football, Alex. Honestly, I, I think it's just, um, it, there's no real need for incision. There's no urgency about it. It's just, it's easier just to... Uh, play the ball inside, play your passes neat, play it tidy. You're not responsible for anything. You're not for blame, to blame for anything. I think it's kind of human nature in their situation. Ownership is a mess. There has to be major surgery on some of those departments. A lot of those players, not quite sure about their futures, I would say. And it's just, this is what happens at the end of the season. You, you yeah, this kind of zombie teams you get sort of from, from about April onwards and Chelsea are that side at the moment, I think. So another thing I would say, like, at the, so at the end of the season, like you're saying these sort of zombie teams, um, Chelsea know they're going to finish basically third or fourth, so they're, they're not going to win anything else. So the motivation is going to be slightly less. Whereas Everton players have probably realised, looking at the table, they're running out of games, and they genuinely could. I mean, it's felt for so long that they can't go down their Everton. You know, it's like Newcastle was before, but they actually can. They really can. They're very close to it. Uh, another game where you tend to get a lot of motivation. Uh, with players who just go nuts at each other is the uh, old farmer Rangers versus Celtic and Celtic played Rangers this weekend and the score finished 1-1 Celtic 1-1 Rangers people always ask me to talk about these old firm games and they're on I don't care about the old firm <laughs> I don't care I don't like it I think it uh, is annoying that everyone assumes you support one of those two teams but don't not all Scottish people support one of those two teams it's better when you don't but 
annoyingly, I've started to find these games really fun to watch. <laughs> Especially this season. This is uh, the, the 19th meeting between the two games. I asked Seb to watch this one. What do you think of the the game? One of the things I thought was interesting that you said to me said to me is that you didn't know who any of the players were. I mean, you did, but you know, there's so many new names, which is interesting to me because it seems so... I'm so you know familiar with it. Yeah, I was actually um, I, I wanted to come on and and, and uh, slag off Rangers and Celtic, but um, no, I, I really enjoyed it. I thought the standard of the football was really good, actually. The one thing I will say though is that you have these, and I don't know if this is typical of of firm games. I, I don't um, in the past I tend to watch sort of thirty minute snippets of them before you know the English football starts somewhere else because it usually kind of starts at 12 o'clock and you sometimes get a one o'clock kickoff in England. The football was really good. The only thing I say is that every now and again you get like, you get really good phases of play between really talented players interrupted by less talented players. It's like sometimes they get in the way a little bit. And that's kind of, that's not a dig at either of the sides. It's kind of, it seems common between them. <laughs> so for instance, I, th- I thought, um, I don't, I think I said to you when we were WhatsApping, I'm not a huge fan of Jota. I think he's quite a good player, but he played really well on Sunday. So maybe I've got him wrong. But I thought some of the ball progression was good. I thought the, um, I thought the, the actually the rhythm of the game was really fun. There was an intensity to it. And I think um, it reminded me a little bit of watching Fenerbahce Galatasaray, for instance. Like, it doesn't matter what the situation is in those games or what the table says or, you know, what the weather's like. You always get a level of intensity that you feel kind of ratcheting up throughout the game and that's what keeps your attention. But in this instance, it wasn't just like, um, you know, massive vending machine shaped players slamming into each other for 90 minutes. It was just, the football's good. And they seem really well-matched teams as well, which is super important. But for me, because I grew up in a kind of a different era of the old firm derby when like that game was full of world-class players, like full of them. I'm thinking about back to the kind of the 90s like you could turn on that game and you'd see like Van Hoydonk or Larsen or, or Laudra Bergasco and a Gordon Jury you know like it was the the equal of anything you could find in England in fact you could argue that I, w- I would say that some of those teams would have been pretty competitive in the Premier League at the time because they were pretty developed and yeah full of talent so it's not quite as it was I understand but um, I had a fun time and anytime you give me like competitive football in a really good atmosphere I'm kind of sold I don't need anything more than that what do you think of the old firm games, Alex? Is there something that interests you? I, I don't know. I, I've not really watched one. I mean, I, I can echo what Seb says. I, my, my memory of, of old firm games is from an earlier period. And so, yes, I associate, I don't, even like Van Bronckhorst, for example, playing as a left-back at Rangers. I don't know. I, th- I think, yes, there's, passion is good. I guess <laughs> you hate passion. You hate it. No, I don't. I don't hate passion. I, uh, I suppose, I suppose you want those games to be competitive from a footballing perspective. You don't. You don't want them to be exciting because everybody's shouting a lot. You know, like it, there needs to be there needs to be something to it. And the, and they're both clearly interesting sides tactically at the moment so I, I suspect it would have been a good game I'm very pleased that you enjoyed it the football was good though like the, both the goals were really well constructed the second goal especially and that's a lovely move that leads to I, I did I did enjoy um, how much they all hate Jai Hart though like because um, for the second goal ball just gets lashed past him at like 400 miles an hour at near post oh he's been in his near post it's rubbish I <laughs> so, just hate him for being English there's going to be no lonelier place in, in world football than being an English goalkeeper in the old firm derby it's got to be a terrible decision but yeah it was it was great I enjoyed it and um, yeah Rangers probably should have won it with that, that one that came off the post at the end um, 
by Fashion Junior. What's his surname? Sakala. Yeah, good player. Good player. <laughs> Fashion Sakala is a great name for a footballer. It's decent football. He's all right. Yeah. Well, that's that game. Uh, let's have a little break and we'll come back because Seb has to go. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And we're back, and Seb has gone. He's a busy boy. Um, I was going to mention, actually, I forgot to talk about this on the old firm bit. Uh, this was a particularly... So you associate it with being all, like, fire and steel and swords. But uh, here, it was actually... I think it was pretty tame. I mean, Postacoglu and Van Bronckhurst shared a hug at the end, which is very unlike <laughs> these sorts of games. It tends to be a nice handshake. Should not be allowed. And uh, one other thing that annoys me still about Scottish football is that the coverage by the pundit... I think in English football, it's got so much better. I think like, BT Sports show on Saturdays before the games is like superb the analysis is amazing they clearly put lots of work and production into it and whoever their researchers are work closely with the footballers to produce those little segments they do and then you've got Monday Night Football Sky Sports fantastic stuff like really like when Carragher and Neville are, are on it it's, I just love watching that show it's great whereas here before the Celtic Rangers game you had Chris Boyd who's they were talking about all the Celtic players they had and they've got these players who can play as strikers they've got Kyogo um, Yakumakis a couple of that. Abada plays as a winger and then Jota plays as a winger but you've got these guys and they weren't sure who's going to play up front to the middle is it Kyogo is it going to be um, whoever else is on the pitch and Boyd says well can't you play the two together and like the reason Celtic are good now is they don't play two strikers it's the system is the most important thing for their resurgence you can't play two strikers up front to the middle because it changes that, like, that lack of he must know Chris Boyd has played international football he must know that the way that tactics and systems were I know it's a small part of the game but it's it's relevant it really annoyed me and uh, I thought I'd dig him out on a podcast sorry Chris Boyd I'm sure you don't listen to this anyway yeah that's what I have to say in that it's important Alex isn't it we've made careers out of it yeah I, I hope you feel better for expiating yourself in that way no but it is uh, it's yeah. true like there was some stuff around the, the Villarreal game where pundits I use that word advisedly were complaining about Villarreal's style of play being negative and you know that's oh it's a disgrace that's like it's not a disgrace it's a team that's not as good trying to beat a team who are better by playing a very clear well thought out and well constructed system of football you just don't like it stop it that particular clip you're referring to as well because i know the one you mean that i think a lot of this is just it's um people getting a little uh, flow state with these sorts of things knowing <laughs> sort of that it it's an easy thing to pick up and go viral oh, I mean, there's sure. a certain point of that yeah but then like and I don't, I don't resent any of that stuff. I think it's quite funny. I like that sort of... Um, on one hand, I don't like what Chris Boyd's saying. This is bad punditry. But I quite like someone who's got a strong opinion and goes for it. I enjoy that. Yeah, as long as that opinion is correct. We can't all be correct, Alex, all the time. Uh, someone who else who can't be correct all the time is David Boys. West Ham 1, 2 Arsenal. Oh, dear. <laughs> what do you make of this one, Alex? Yeah... I think that it was it was slightly like watching a headliner when the warm-up band has been absolutely brilliant 
and you're a bit like, eh, I know all these songs, you know? It, it just it felt like a letdown after the Everton game. Arsenal, we've talked a bit about Arsenal in the past. Like, they're a good side who are getting better, but I find myself respecting what they do rather than being excited by it. When Bakaya Saka gets on the ball, that can be exciting because he's just fun. Like, he, he did a couple of things in this game that were really enjoyable. Uh, I think what Enketi is doing is interesting. I mean, he he had quite a few shots in this game, but he was obviously making an effort to to drop off, to link play, to press. You could see he was dropping uh, really deep and to link. He it, was, wasn't he? It yeah. was, yeah. It was like it was like Arteta's. Like, I, I want you to do the stuff that Lacazette was doing, but also because you're younger and faster, I then expect you to get back up into the box and provide some sort of threat as well. And actually, that seems to be working relatively well. He's not going to stay as a starting striker for them if they can afford to buy someone better. But you know, it was decent. I think. What else did I highlight? Oh yeah, you you've clicked on that uh, that Twitter thing that I've helpfully put in the podcast plan about Jared Bowen, which reminds me what I'd actually put. Yeah, Jared Bowen. I mean, hundredth goal involvement across league football. He was able to inject some excitement into this game on occasion. There's a directness to him. There's a, a unpredictability. He's really like, he's, good. He is. Fun. He's such a good player. And I think Jared in Bowen. a game where. I would absolutely not say that either team was going through the motions at all. I think it was just a game that started at a low tempo and generally failed to ignite. I mean, there was that bit where Rice and Nketiah got in each other's faces and that seemed to go on for five minutes and no one was entirely sure why it was happening. But it felt like a slightly lethargic game peppered with moments of excellence from a couple of exciting young players in Bowen and Saka that was otherwise fairly unremarkable. Well, one of the we can talk about transfer gossip linked to Arsenal because I quite like this one. Gabriel Jesus has been strongly linked with a the move there, possibly in the summer. He would be very good in that Lacazette role, the dropping false nine player. You can come in. That he's he he's very good tactically. It would suit Arteta. Obviously, he's worked with him. When they, remember this game, I think he played against Real Madrid and Guardiola played him as a left-sided forward, almost like a wing-back, because he was coming... So that you know, positions are sort of dead with Guardiola, I think. It's just you're in certain bits of the pitch depending on certain phases of play, where the ball is, where your opponent is. But Jesus was one of the most important players in that game. I think they won it, if I recall correctly. Yeah, going up and down that left wing, making sure Danny Carvajal couldn't do anything. And uh, So that's the kind of thing that Arteta would have worked on, and I think he was there at that time. Yeah, that would make so much sense going to Arsenal, right? It's it's the tactical intelligence that you're talking about. I think that's one of the the things that is underrated, particularly in or underappreciated, particularly in attacking players, is the degree to which because we I suppose we associate a lot of the time uh, attacking play and goal scoring is is to do with instinct and anticipation and minutiae, and that that's not disrespectful at all. I but I mean the the little moments or movements that take you away from defenders or the stop start before you begin your run that allows you to spring in behind and so on and so forth. And so we we rightly highlight those aspects when we talk about attacking players because that's what produces goals. But you get some attacking players who are also really smart in terms of how they tactically fit in with the rest of the team. Obviously, if you spent a lot of time working with Guardiola, that's going to be heightened because <laughs> Guardiola is really good at getting players to do that. 
And you can see with that Arsenal lineup, particularly if they play that 4-2-3-1 where you've got, you know, I, I prefer Smith-Rowe to Martinelli. I don't quite get the Martinelli thing at this point. but Oh, really? Oh, I think Martinelli, I'd have him over um, everyone on that team apart from Saka. I think Martinelli is properly, could be one of those top tier players in a few years. Like he's already, he makes things happen. So things happen. I Maybe I just haven't seen enough of him yet, but I like... But if you've got if you've got players like Smith Rowe or Martinelli or Saka who are looking to cut inside, a forward player who will either be in the box or able to drop off and link play creatively or pull wide and create those little moments of space because the anticipation of how you move to create space for others is so important for Guardiola coach teams and is clearly something that Arteta wants to get his players doing as with as much synchronicity and uh, as fluidly as a Guardiola side, because that that's the aspiration for a coach of Arteta's type. He's going to fit really well into that. And, you know, he's young enough to fit in with the age profile of the sort of players that they're looking to recruit, but he's old and experienced enough to actually provide some of that leadership and, and some of that uh, experience in that part of the pitch, which they are kind of slightly lacking a little bit. So yeah, makes perfect sense. The players they can get in the summer will depend on the next four games because they currently sit in fourth Arsenal, which is seems to be generally regarded as ahead of where they thought they would be or aim to be. Like the, the jump this season should have been to get Europa League place, maybe. Uh, Man United, who play on Monday night, uh, obviously record this on a Monday, I would expect them to lose to Brentford, weirdly. <laughs> that's how bad well, they are the mighty now. Why is that weird? <laughs> I would expect them to lose to Brentford uh, just, as well. Just how the mighty have fallen. I mean, can, you, can you see like Ivan Tony against those Man United centre-backs? It's just funny. They're not going to like it, yeah. And it's just that's the thing. The confidence has gone from them. And it's not like they're just desperate to get over the line. Like, you know, they've... Um, survives the uh, like the, the shipwreck and then they're just trying to swim to the beach and they're just so close and then they can just relax on the beach for a bit just relax and then they can work out to build a raft to get home to Manchester this is a weird journey I've gone down yeah. but this also, is my Eric Ten Hag's on the beach waving a cocktail but yes. he's not going to give it to all of them he's only going to share his cocktail with some players that's correct some of them are going and he's also got some um, sea He's got some mates for them already on the beach, ready prepared for his oh, particular yes. uh, survival game. Uh, he's built tree huts for them. It's getting bigger. This, mm-hmm. It's sort of like a, a jungly type Hammocks. place. Uh, and, yeah, and The Rock is there. And Jack Black, because they're always in those yeah. movies, right, on a sort of island Obviously. like that. Jack and Black's there's... got an acoustic guitar. So, yeah, they'll lose to Brentford. Wahey! Yeah, there we go. So anyway, that's that. So we just created a sort of adventure movie um, and they have to escape from there, having crashed there. But yeah, this is the end of the Premier League season. So like Tottenham and Arsenal are very much going to be fighting for that that bit. I think Spurs' goal difference, this is a stupid thing to say, but Spurs' goal difference of 20 compared to Arsenal's 13 says to me that they are the better team right now and might be able to sneak that in. I th- you can't tell too much on goal difference, but generally when you look at a league and you see that one team's got like plus 40 and they're in similar... Yeah, it did sense to mean they're, they're a better team that's scoring more goals, conceding fewer. Man United are going to struggle here. But yeah, Arsenal's signings in the summer will depend largely on whether they get that Champions League place because you can attract better players. That's just the obvious thing. The, what they definitely need to do 
is buy-in players who are going to get them more goals because the split in their squad is very, very small. Saka has 11, Smith-Rowe has 10. He's not even started most games. You know, he swaps with Martinelli, not really sure who's there. Odegaard's more a playmaker. And then it's just a bunch of players who have four goals, one of them being uh, Gabriel, who's obviously a centre-back and taking advantage of set pieces. And Ketty has only got two. Well, both both the goals in this game were from from centre-backs off set pieces. I mean... Gabriel's was a little developed from that phase. That's it. Very important set pieces. It didn't look like anyone else was going to score particularly. Oh, for sure. Set pieces are great, but you don't want to be relying on them to win games like this. I mean, Saka could have scored a bit. Like There was a really good save from Fabianski, but yeah. They need goals. They do need goals. And um, I feel like I've run out of things I want to say about the Premier League this week. Is there any any games you've seen that we haven't talked about, Alex? I watched a little bit of the highlights of Palace Southampton. Southampton Palace even and yeah Palace they're quite a sexy team to watch at the moment there was some really nice link up play quick interchanges for a Mateta shot that was saved Schlupp on the overlap looked really threatening they've got exciting players there Southampton are hit and miss team at the best of times but there's a swagger to what Palace are doing that's really quite exciting so I enjoyed cameos there, even though it was a defeat of my own side. But yeah, that's it really. Otherwise, just just a fairly relaxing weekend. Started rewatching Twenty Four. Oh, that's so good! That's that good. Show. <laughs> what season from season one? From season one, yeah. See, I think yeah. season two is absolute yeah. peak of that whole tour. It's so good. And the problem is, I want to ruin this for everyone. But then, like in a later season, the I can it's. it's I'm allowed to do spoilers now for 24, haven't I? You've, re- you've seen them all before, have you? Yeah. So there's in like season four or five when the nuclear bomb does actually go off. Like they can't do that because once that thing is always the threat happens, what are you going to do? Yeah. I, but this, this is what happens with television is that as, as a thing is more successful, unless it's being conceived as a start point and end point, people commission a new series it's like, oh, the last series was so good. Everyone loved it. Let's commission a new series. And then things get have to become more extreme to hold the audience's attention. And when your starting point is, you know, the potential assassination of a presidential candidate, <laughs> the, the only way is to, like, there's not a lot further you can go in terms of stuff getting unbelievably dark. So... Yeah, they kind of hoist themselves on their own petard. They need to, people need to be more disciplined with television series and go, like The Wire, five series, in and out, yeah. arc that works through the whole thing, no more. Well, I mean, it's, it, it's quite hard to write The Wire, in fairness. But what I would say is, like, once they blew up that bomb in 24, and then that was all, like I said, it's always a threat. Suddenly you don't have that peril that's there. Like, it could happen. Once it actually does, then it's not actually that bad. It's like, the whole world doesn't end like you think it's supposed to when that goes off. Mm. They sort of ruin the whole point of the show. You need that peril. Much like in the Premier League at the bottom, because you've got Everton, they're just clanging on trying to get in. Leeds got torn apart by Manchester City, sort of. Also a set-pieces thing. That's Man City had a couple of goals from set-pieces in that, that game to get into it. You know, it's not that easy. Leads look okay. It's very tense at the bottom. And you, if you imagine this bit with the, so tense. the ding, 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 you know, the 24 bit in the top corner, just because I'm counting down. That would be a really fun edit to do with the manager's faces. and. Yes, yeah. I bet someone's done that at some point. If anyone from BT Sport is listening, steal JJ's idea because he's complimented you and now it's payback time. <laughs> yeah. In a good way. Payback's a bad thing, isn't it? I mean, it's... 
yeah you know unless you're paying someone back money you owe them i am uh, rambling today i need to stop talking (laughs) i think we're gonna wrap that up there dreadfully sorry everyone for my performance in this week's podcast i swear i'll improve week to week but yeah that's the um that's the football it was very good uh, i'm sure you'll all be pleased to know that aberdeen won a game finally uh but they only scored a goal because of a penalty again this is the only way they can score in case you were interested in that i don't think anyone is but that is our podcast alex seb's not here for the last part maybe it'd have been if he was here to stop me from rambling that might have been better but uh he wasn't and we enjoyed ourselves i had fun did you have fun always oh, that's good well Let's do it. Let's end it there. I'm just going to go. I'm going to stop the podcast now. Oh, no, I have to say thanks. Thanks, Alex. Bye. Thanks, Seb. Bye, everyone. Have a lovely week. Bye.